This is Hubwonk. I'm Joe Salvaggi. Welcome to Hubwonk, a podcast of Pioneer Institute, a think tank in Boston. There's a conspicuous gap between the growing domestic doctor shortage and the abundant supply of foreign trained doctors eager to immigrate to America. Unfortunately, unlike highly trained professionals in other strategic fields, U.S. state regulators require foreign trained doctors to redo their medical residency, regardless of past experience or expertise. Recently, this onerous requirement was made more conspicuous when President Biden decided to make immigration a strategic weapon against the Russian dictatorship by promising a smooth immigration process to interested Russian scientists and engineers. Indeed, whereas the U.S. might expect to lure many of Russia's finest professional minds, Russian doctors, by contrast, facing a residency do-over, are far less likely to emigrate and mitigate the U.S. shortage. Is there a way to change our state-level licensing process that would bring needed doctors to the U.S.? And could improvements offer doctors living in oppressive regimes such as Russia a new pathway to freedom? My guest today is Jonathan Wilson, Chief Legal Officer and Policy Director at the Cicero Institute. Mr. Wilson has researched and written extensively on the causes and possible solutions for the doctor shortage in the United States. He will share with us the scale and impact of the doctor shortage crisis and propose constructive policy steps that could help bring much needed medical professionals to the US system, while also lifting the lamp of freedom to those doctors living in hostile regimes. When I return, I'll be joined by Cicero Institute's Jonathan Wolfson. Okay, we're back. This is Hubwonk. I'm Joe Salvaggi, and I'm pleased to be joined by the Chief Legal Officer and Policy Director at the Cicero Institute, Jonathan Wilson. Welcome to Hubwonk, Jonathan. Thanks, Joe. Thanks so much for having me. I'm really glad to be here. Well, great. I, I don't know if all our listeners know the Cicero Institute. So before we dive into our, our topic today, um, in, a, in a high level, what is the Cicero Institute all about? Yeah, so the Cicero Institute was started a couple years ago, and it's focused on bringing entrepreneurial ideas to public policy problems. A bunch of folks in Silicon Valley sat down and said, what if you were to get some of the smartest people in a room and think about a problem? What would their solutions be? Not trying to think about it, it whether there's a politician who likes it because that's good for their party platform, but what would the right answer to those questions be? And so we try to come up with those answers. And then we have, as an organization, both a research 501c3 organization that tries to identify the solutions to those problems. And then we have a 501c4 advocacy arm that works with lobbyists in various states around the country. And the objective is for us to help get legislators who will champion these ideas and actually enact them into law. Wow, using uh, entrepreneurs to inform policy. What an idea. Not leaving it to the politicians. Well, uh, I'm on board. Let's let's start uh, with today's topic. We're going to talk about you know, the primary reasons uh, why we have um, uh, doctor shortages, possible remedies uh, for helping us uh, resolve those. Uh, but we also have a twist in our show. Uh, I don't want to uh, jump uh, bury the lead, uh, but we can also uh, talk about using uh, our policy reform as a strategic weapons uh, in our uh, against our international enemies. So I'll, I'll tease our audience with that. Uh, so let's start with the problem. Um, we've had in an earlier Hubwonk episode, um, uh, we addressed the fact that we have an aging population, we have a doctor shortage that grows every day. 
put some numbers for our listeners' benefit. How how dire is the doctor shortage in the United States right now? Yeah, Joe. So in the United States, it's projected that by the year 2030, we're going to be short by about 120,000 doctors in the United States. And that's actually exacerbated by the fact that projections say over the next decade or so, we're going to see between 30 and 40% of the physician population hit retirement age. It doesn't mean they're actually going to retire, but it's going to mean that they're going to hit that age where a lot of workers in our workforce traditionally have decided to try to figure out ways to cut back on their hours, maybe find ways to not be as busy and spend more time with family, with friends, doing activities they love. And so you add on top of the fact that we think we're going to have 120,000 too few doctors with the fact that roughly a third of our physician population is going to be looking for ways to cut back on their work. And we're going to see a massive physician shortage over the next 10 to 15 years. And this physician shortage is not just going to hit rural areas or poverty stricken areas. But as you get more and more of a shortage, it's going to start hitting everywhere in the country because people are going to need to find doctors and they're going to have longer and longer waits to do it because there's just not enough doctors to take care of the patients that need to get taken care of. So we're already at shortage levels, 120,000 you mentioned, and that would be if no, no doctors ever retired. If, if they do retire or scale back as others do, and we talk about on the show, the silver tsunami, the 10,000 people every day retire. So the aging baby boomer is affecting every industry, but uh, medicine should be no different. So as these uh, doctors age out, uh, it makes an already bad problem worse. Is, is the shortage um, across the board, across all specialties, or are we talking primarily here about primary care, family doctor type doctors? So there's going to be shortages. The expectations, projections, the American Medical Association and other organizations who've looked at this say it's going to be kind of across specialties, but it's going to be much more acute in primary care. The reality is that primary care tends to be lower compensated. It is not considered as prestigious for people coming out of the top medical programs. And so people aren't looking to get into primary care as kind of their number one thing to do coming out of med school. And as a result, you see people, if they have a choice between being, say, a cardiac surgeon and being a pediatrician, a lot of them are going to choose to be a cardiac surgeon for a number of reasons. But as a result, that means that the shortages are just going to be exacerbated at the primary care level. And to your point about the aging baby boomers, as those baby boomers age, while they're going to need specialty care, they're also going to be able to need to see their regular primary care physician that much more frequently. And so not only are you going to see the population of doctors shrinking, you're going to see the demand for their services increasing at the same time. Sure, sure. And I don't want to pile on this uh, this uh, bad news, but uh, I think virtually every day I hear about how uh, this uh, terrible past couple of years of COVID has accelerated um, burnout. You know, uh, this is, seems to be beyond the ordinary great resignation, as we're told. Uh, this includes medicine or might be even worse than medicine. Do you have any numbers on how uh, uh, you know, this shortage has been um, aggravated by, by COVID? Yeah, well, so... What's interesting is we've heard those stories and the Massachusetts Medical Society actually before COVID did some analysis on physician burnout. And this was specific to Massachusetts. And they found before COVID that roughly 78% of physicians were already facing burnout, which is a crazy high number. And then we think about how much COVID probably would have exacerbated that number. They haven't come out with their most recent data based on post-COVID analyses, but I feel like based on all the anecdotal reporting we've all heard and seen over the last couple of years, that that number is going to be even higher. What they found in the study that they released, they said that that means there's about a 30% chance that those doctors would reduce their workload over the next two years to try to reduce burnout. 
So again, this is one more place that we're going to see doctors for whatever reason, maybe it's those doctors who previously were thinking about just cutting back their hours. And now they're just so burnt out that they say, I'm just going to retire altogether. Or you're going to see people who will set, who will look at the profession. Maybe they're in medical school and they get an opportunity to go work at a drug company and try to help cure a disease, or they can go and be a patient care physician. And they're going to say, you know, Everyone I know in patient care is absolutely burnt out and they're not getting to solve the biggest problems. They're stuck doing paperwork and dealing with charts all day. I can go and actually solve a problem by going and working for one of the medical device companies and I'm going to go do that instead. And so that's just another way you further shrink the population of doctors who are available to care for all of the needs that we're going to see in our country in the years to come. Okay, we've established we've got a problem. Uh, let's uh, talk about why. Um, why is it so there's such a shortage? Is is it, uh, is it owed to the fact that um, uh, students, uh, young people, don't want to go into the medical field and become doctors? Would they rather become uh, stockbrokers or attorneys? Well, as, as a recovering attorney myself, I can tell you it's probably not the right choice to go become a lawyer instead of becoming a doctor. But even if that was part of the problem, the reality is we're not seeing the number of people applying to med school go down. We're not seeing the number of people who are completing medical school go down. The reality is we have some artificial constraints on the market that have been imposed. We have a limited number of medical school seats, and these numbers have not really changed to any significant extent over the last 30 years. As we've seen the population of the United States grow, as we've seen global populations grow, we're producing about the exact same number of medical school graduates in a typical year. There's a few, that's not exactly the right number. It's gone up a little bit, but it hasn't gone up anywhere near the numbers you need if you're just trying to track population. On top of that, the number of residency seats, which, you know, for folks who don't know, once you finish medical school, you know, when you finish law school, you go take a bar exam and you can go start practicing on clients immediately, right? You show up in court and you can make all sorts of mistakes and hurt your poor client. But that's the way that we learn to be lawyers. With doctors, we realize that we need to be a little more careful with how we treat patients. And so we want them to go through additional kind of specialized training, and that's called residency. And residency slots are a highly competitive process where medical students spend roughly six months of their medical school career traveling around the country, interviewing for residency slots at various schools in the specialties that they would like to work in. Ultimately, there's what's called match day. And this is this really important day for a medical school student's life where they are officially told you have been matched to go from your medical school to re residency program X. You don't get to choose between 10 different ones. It's not like the college admissions process. It would be as if you go through the college admissions process and they tell you, as of tomorrow, you will be a student at Boston University. That's where you're going to go. And that's how they go about their residency. And so these slots have been artificially constrained in the Medicare budget since the 1990s. What's crazy is in the 1990s, there were projections that we were going to have a physician uh, overage, an excess number of physicians in the United States. And so they artificially constrained the funding that was going to go to the various states and the medical schools and hospitals for residency slots. And as a result, we've seen almost no growth in residency slots in the United States in over 20 years. And this is really where the problem kicks in. And so as a result, people graduating med school, even many people who do well in med school in the United States can't find a residency slot. And so they either have to go find some alternative career or they have to apply over and over and over again in the hopes of getting that residency slot so that they can then go start seeing patients. So we've got lots of people crowding to get through very, very few doors. Um, and uh, I know you're a recovering attorney or 
Uh, you're also a, re a recovering economist. I think that's uh, you're also trained as an economist. Um, when we artificially constrain supply, of course, um, perhaps those doctors could command a greater uh, premium for their services. Uh, the cynic in me says that might be the reason. Why do you think um, we've constrained the uh, slots that all doctors need to go through uh, and therefore constrain the supply of doctors? What, what, what would be the motive to do that? That's a great question, Joe. You know, I think that there, I'm sure there are some places in the country that the sole reason that they constrain the number of doctors, whether it's through the licensing requirement in a state or through the reduction in residency slots or medical school slots is a competitive reason. And doctors are looking for a way to capitalize on, you know, a smaller market share. Obviously, if you can get monopoly pricing, you can make more money. Insurance companies probably play a big role in making sure that that's not as big of an opportunity for doctors, even if you were to limit constrain the supply, the insurance companies are still going to negotiate rates. The Medicare rate negotiation is all still going to happen. But I do think that what we've seen is professionalization in the United States. Every profession likes to think of itself as special. We do it in the law. We do it in medicine. We do it in plumbing. We do it in barbering. Every single profession in the United States likes to think that they have the special sauce and they want to set up barriers to entry because they really want to protect the, the industry. They don't want people hurting individuals who are patients. They don't want customers hurt. They don't want the citizenry hurt. And so it's really easy to go into a state legislature and say, hey, look at these people who are hurt by somebody who doesn't have a license, by somebody who doesn't know what they're doing. We need to increase the barriers to entry in this into this profession. And so once you've increased those barriers, then anything you do to make it harder to access the materials you need to to reach those barriers becomes that much harder to get to. And so I think that that's really a big part of the problem. And so we see that doctors and the medical, the state medical boards rightly want to make sure patients are safe and they wanna make sure that only good medical students become doctors in their state. But what ends up happening is those burdens get stacked on top of other burdens. And now the medical schools are stuck having to train a much smaller number of doctors to fill a much smaller number of residency slots. So the the, the wrapping on this policy is quality control, but I can imagine um, a very talented potential doctor just looking at this Byzantine process and saying, you know what, I, I, don't, I don't think I want to go into that profession. It, it, there's too many doors to walk through that uh, uh, aren't there, as you mentioned, in other professions. Um, so I, I want to talk about a uh, something you've written about, um, sort of a, a workaround whereby we don't make as many um, locally grown doctors, but there are doctors across the world um, who presumably, I, I hope our listeners will accept our premise that uh, biology is the same uh, the world over. So um, so let's talk about that concept. Um, you mentioned in one of your pieces that I read that um, uh, as a place to start, there are Americans who go uh, internationally for procedures that they don't otherwise get here. So it doesn't seem to be the case that Americans uh, worried about quality control are reticent to go to another country to have a procedure. Um, so it doesn't seem to be um, a pervasive view that we've got the only good doctors in the world. Share with me um, what's going on. Why can't we, let's say, help import some doctors who presumably would like to come here? Why? Uh, you know, I don't want. I don't want to jump too far ahead here. But why don't we just, in sense, uh, have plenty of uh, eager doctors uh, emigrating to the United States? Yeah. Well, I'll start kind of at the premise. 
you know, you mentioned the fact that Americans are traveling all over the world for care. And this isn't just people looking for experimental care or for treatments that they can't get their insurance company to approve in the United States. So they're looking for a cheaper place to get it. In fact, we see world-class athletes all the time. A colleague of mine, Josh Archambault, and I wrote an op-ed during the Olympics talking about the number of Olympic athletes who travel all over the world to get surgical treatments. But the crazy thing is, if they go to the best knee surgeons in Finland or in Iceland who have treated hundreds and thousands of Olympic athletes, David Beckham, one of the most world-famous soccer players in the, in the world, he's been treated by these guys. If you as an American athlete travel over to Finland for treatment, nobody bats nine. They say, you know, that's going to the best doctor. But if the U.S. ski team wanted to hire that doctor to come and be the U.S. ski team's doctor in Salt Lake City, the Utah Medical Board would say he wasn't allowed to practice in Utah. And so this is just a barrier to entry where we're saying to doctors, they can't practice, even though, to your point, biology is the same all over the world. And so one of the interesting things is that in the United States, in order to become licensed, you have to complete your residency program in the United States or in Canada. So even if you have taken medical school in the United States, if you end up not matching and don't get one of those residency slots in the United States, and let's say you get residency in England or in Japan, after you complete that residency, if you want to come back and practice in the United States, say you go to Harvard Medical School, you don't match for a residency, you go to Japan and you do a residency program there, and you want to come back to Boston and practice in Boston, you would have to actually repeat residency. You'd have to match to a residency program in the United States in order to practice. And this doesn't matter if you have been just come out of residency. So if you're that student who went to Harvard and went to Japan for residency and finished residency and want to come tomorrow to practice, or if you stay in Japan and practice for 25 years and become the best orthopedic surgeon in Japan, and while you want to come and work on the, you know, the faculty at Harvard, the state of Massachusetts is not going to allow that doctor to practice in Massachusetts unless she or he decides to repeat residency in the United States or Canada. Uh, and so that's, that is just one of the rules that we have set up. And so regardless of where you've practiced and learned to practice, you end up having to repeat residency. One other thing I'll mention, Joe, which is kind of not everybody understands, about a third of our doctors in the United States are actually foreign trained, meaning that they went to medical school outside of the United States, and then they matched into a residency program in the United States or Canada and now are practicing here. So it's not a question of whether folks can get medical training in other countries and then bring that training here and be successful. In fact, so there's some studies that show that they actually have better outcomes than the American trained doctors do. So it's really a question of whether or not there's something special about doing residency in the United States that makes that type of training unique. If that's the only way you can learn to practice on patients in the United States. Now, I don't, I don't want to be labeled uh, Mr. America first, though I perhaps might, might view it that way. But why is it that uh, we're letting uh, um, foreign trained or um, international medical students attend or go through these residencies when clearly many American uh, medical students aren't getting those slots themselves? That's a great question. So we, the reality is that we have had international medical students come and use residency slots and then practice in the United States for decades. This isn't a, a new phenomenon. This isn't something that happened, you know, when some president that somebody may or may not like was in office. This is the, this has kind of been a rea reality of our system. We in the United States realize that there are some really talented people all over the world, and we would love to get those talented people to come to the United States. And if they can help heal our 
uh, citizens, it's a great idea to do it. And that's kind of been a tradition in, in the United States from right or left political leanings, from you know all sorts of economic positions. The reality is we've always allowed this. It hasn't really increased by that significant of a number. And what ends up happening is these international students come in, they interview for residency slots, and many of them have amazingly impressive credentials. And if you are running a residency program at Boston University, you look at those students and you say, look, these students actually have exactly the credentials that we need so that we can produce the absolute best anesthesiologist that we can possibly produce out of our program. And so the programs are attracted to finding the best possible students in the same way that we're not surprised that there are NBA players who are playing from all over the world and the NBA teams are scouting them. These residency programs are scouting top students from top medical schools all over the world, and they want them to come and do residency programs. So it's kind of a longstanding tradition, but the reality is there is, we need to figure out what we can do for folks who can't find residency slots, who complete medical school in the United States. And there really has not been a solution proposed for them either. Again, to your original point, if you, uh, wherever you get them, if it's just same number of residencies, you're not going to solve the problem. You're just getting a sort of diverse, more diverse supply of, of doctors from around the world. But again, to drill further down into this, this concept, um, it, the people who are showing up might be fresh graduates from medical school who are going to enter um, uh, residency. The best surgeon in the world or the, the one that attends to this Olympic ski team uh, he's or she has been practicing for many, many, many years, has established him or herself as the best in the world. They themselves seem very unlikely to uh, immigrate to the United States, largely because they'd have to start all over again, right? They'd have to sort of put the uh, awards and the uh, accolades on, on a shelf and, and, and re-enter the residencies. Do I have that right? Is it, is it bad as I described? That's exactly right. So even if you and I would feel absolutely no qualms about sending our very best friend, our spouse, our kids to go get treatment from one of these doctors, and this could be true, you know, you could have a president of a foreign country who has absolutely no problem getting on a plane and flying and getting treatment. That doctor has to jump through the exact same hoops as somebody who finished residency in one of those foreign countries today. And so that's kind of a crazy concept that somebody could be well-established as the best fill in the blank specialty around the world, and that doctor can't practice in the United States unless she decides to come back and pretend to be a brand new medical school graduate working with those you know, folks in their late 20s who just finished medical school and learning learning how to be a doctor. Yeah, that, that's hard, hard, to, hard to believe. Um, so I want to talk about how um, you addressed two, two issues at the top of the show. One was a, a shortage of doctors in general, but also a shortage of doctors in, um, let's say, poor or underserved communities for whatever reason they're underserved. How does the medical community make sure that um, you know, the best and brightest coming out of school, they don't all just head to Boston where uh, lots of people and perhaps lots of money, uh, who's helping um, the rural uh, Appalachian communities make sure they have enough uh, doctors there. How does that work? So amazingly, there's not really a, a huge structure of systems that are set up to ensure that doctors go where they're most needed. We have what's called health professional shortage areas. And so there are some grants and loans and money that's given from the federal government. If you are a practicing doctor in those areas, there's some financial incentives. But generally, doctors are free agents, and they are able to go where they choose. So if they would prefer to be in Boston where there's, say, money or you know a, a nightlife that they prefer, that there's nothing preventing them from doing that so long as you know one of the major hospitals or doctor's offices in that area wants to hire them. 
And so this is part of the reason that international physicians are so intriguing is that international physicians tend to actually concentrate more heavily in these rural and underserved areas as compared to American trained college, uh, medical student graduates. And so, you know, in, in Massachusetts, for example, there are two entire counties that are considered health professional shortage areas. Uh, and then some part of every county in the state of Massachusetts is actually a medical shortage, a medical professional shortage area. And so what we see is that there are lots of places where doctors could go and serve underserved populations. But at least as of right now, even though the Northeast is graduating a lot more medical students than, say, the Southwest, and there are a lot more residency slots in the Northeast than there are in the Southwestern United States, the uh, doctors are still not going to those areas in the numbers that we need to reach these, to address these shortages. So you're saying the, the uh, foreign born or foreign trained are more likely to go to these, uh, let's say, uh, less well-served communities. Uh, I'm going to take a guess and say, okay, our, our, you know, I'm here in downtown Boston. Every other person is is a doctor, but um, but they probably are uh, chosen Boston because they may have grown up here. They may have grown up in Lincoln, and every everybody they know is a, a doctor, and they're not apt to go to uh, Springfield or someplace like this. Um, it, it is, does it follow that way? Whereas the the the, the American uh, uh, medical student from Lincoln stays in Boston. The foreign-born and trained doctor may go to, um, you know, uh, I don't know what 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 community you say is the least well served here in Massachusetts, but would go there. No, I think that's exactly right, Joe. I think you know, in the same way that as me being a kid who grew up in the Chicago suburbs, I might not want to go hang out with a bunch of White Sox fans since I'm a Cubs fan. So I have these <laughs> tribal reasons that, you know, and you might have a Boston uh, a Boston kid who doesn't necessarily want to go hang out in Connecticut with all the Yankees fans, you know, the wrong part of Connecticut. But, you know, the, what, you, what you could very well see is somebody who doesn't have those same biases or not, and bias is not a bad word in this sense. This is just Kind of your personal upbringing and your reasons for wanting or not wanting to live in one particular place if you don't have those and you see america as a country of opportunity not just as kind of these are the neighborhoods that i would prefer to live in but just the entire country is somewhere i would like to be if you're a doctor trained overseas that becomes an opportunity for you to go to an area that maybe there aren't as many doctors you are able to then treat more patients you can integrate in the community more quickly and more easily and you know if you have some differences to your community finding a community that is going to embrace you as kind of their doctor can be really rewarding for a doctor who comes to the United States. It gives them a chance to really embrace the American dream. So very interesting. So we've established that uh, uh, foreign trained doctors may well be among the best and brightest of all those going into residency. And we also established that they're more inclined to uh, work in places that really need doctors. So it's a, it's a, a, a terrific asset. So I want to pivot our uh, conversation from um, you know, beating the drum about doctor shortages and talk about something um, about immigration. In fact, uh, you recently wrote a piece in the Washington Examiner, which I thought was a very interesting read, where you talk about um, recent uh, President Biden's laudable goal of, of providing incentives for uh, the most skilled uh, Russians, uh, engineers and scientists, uh, really a strategic weapon is saying, okay, look, uh, we don't just want to turn off your oil. We want to take your uh, best and brightest, smartest people and have them uh, relocate here. Um, you can see it as a, uh, perhaps they're uh, escaping a dictatorship or just looking for a better life. We'll take all the smart uh, people you want to give us. Uh, but uh, your, your piece points out the fact that that doesn't apply to Russian doctors. 
or I guess Russian uh, aspiring uh, um, uh, residency uh, students. Say more about this glaring, uh, um, shining light on uh, this problem vis-a-vis -vis, uh, strategic uh, immigration policy. Yeah, the, the Biden administration was absolutely right to point out that there are a number of people who want to leave Russia right now. And we as the United States should be welcoming them with open arms. If you've got someone in the STEM field, so science, technology, engineering and math, you've got someone in one of those fields who can come and work in our hospitals as a researcher, can come and work in our uh, universities, can come and work in our technolo technology companies. All of these are great opportunities to find amazing talent, especially given the workforce shortages that the United States is facing right now. Finding talented people is a great idea. But to your point, in the United States, even if you were a Russian doctor who's been practicing for 15 years as a primary care physician, or let's say you're an OBGYN and you've delivered hundreds of babies over the last couple of years, and you want to get out of Russia, if you decide that you want to move to Massachusetts because you've got family there, or you want to move to Illinois or wherever you want to move, that person is not going to be able to practice medicine because of the rules that we've already been talking about. So my piece just points out the irony that even though we want to encourage this brain drain, right, there's strategic reasons to do it for, you know, geopolitical reasons, but there's also just physician shortage strategic reasons that finding well-trained physicians from around the world can benefit our country. The reality is these state rules block those individuals' ability to practice medicine. So, you know, Russia is talking about over 400,000 people per year leaving their country, and they think they're going to lose probably about 100,000 tech workers in just the next month. These are all smart people that President Biden wisely wants to bring into the United States. And so finding ways to say, hey, if you're a medical doctor in Russia, uh, you know, they've got about 600,000 doctors in Russia. And so if, you know, if even a handful of those doctors came, if we only, if we're 120,000 short and we got a fifth of their doctors to come here, we very quickly start addressing our physician shortage. So uh, good, you, you, you didn't say in your article, but I'll ask you now, can you sort of infer from um, the data that says, okay, this is the percentage of engineers or nuclear scientists or percentage of whatever um, uh, that leave Russia to come here. Can you infer from, you mentioned 600,000, at what rate would they be uh, likely to emigrate if there were no additional barriers, not no barriers, but no additional barriers that are specific or peculiar to the uh, medical community? Yeah, that's a great question. You know, I think that what we do know is that polling of Russian young workers, so roughly 18 to 39 population, about half of those workers say they would like to leave Russia and work abroad. Now, that doesn't mean they all want to work in the United States. But if you have a population of about 150 million people in Russia and you take that big a block of their working population and half of them want to leave, and we know that there's you know, about 600,000 total doctors, the ability for us to find 30, 40, 50,000 of those doctors who would be interested in moving to the United States is not hard to imagine. Now, where in the United States they'd want to move, I can't tell you, but I think it wouldn't be surprising if we were to reduce the barriers to entry as doctors if those folks who have the skills and ability to pass the medical licensing exams that are still required to you know, be licensed in the state, but for the fact that they haven't taken residency in the United States or Canada, I think that we'd see a significant number. So um, you mentioned earlier in a response that, that much of the, these constraints are made at the state level. Um, and uh, you know, Massachusetts, uh, our listeners come from all ends of the uh, uh, political continuum. 
they're they're doers. They're not just uh, thinkers. Uh, they like to affect change. I can imagine there uh, our listeners, uh, let's say perhaps those on the right who who are more market oriented, uh, see more doctors as 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 only beneficial to a medical system that's already too expensive. We want to remove constraints or increase supply so as to reduce costs. That uh, has that appeal. Um, we all think uh, we want to reach out to uh, uh, those living in Russia in an oppressive dictatorship. So the natural American compassion on both sides, and and maybe on on the left, you know, these might perceive these people as refugees who who deserve uh, America's uh, you know uh, uh, hand of freedom. Um, what can our listeners do? To uh, change this, what what can we do to reach out and uh, invite these doctors, these you know ones that we absolutely need? What can we do uh, at a state level to uh, increase the flow, not just from Russia, perhaps from other countries like it, uh, where we it's it's win win to use a, a cliche. Absolutely. So at Cicero Institute, we have designed a reform to allow international physicians to enter the United States without repeating residency, and basically it would be a state statute that provides a few different pathways for a doctor who is already licensed in another country and has been practicing for a few years to apply directly to a state medical board to get their training approved so that they could come in, to have a medical facility, whether that's a hospital or a doctor's office, sponsor them and give them a temporary kind of contingent license that after a couple of years automatically becomes a full license to have international residency programs themselves apply to states to get kind of the good housekeeping seal of approval from a state licensing board that in the state of Massachusetts, for example, all the people who graduate from residency programs at you know Cambridge University in London can count as if they had graduated from a US-based residency program. And the last is to allow people who are already licensed and practicing in a handful of countries, generally Commonwealth countries that are allowed to pretty much instantly moved to Canada and practice medicine, would it be allowed to come to the United States? Because right now, if you are a practicing doctor in Canada and you want to move to the United States, you don't have to repeat residency. And so that's the kind of the one backdoor path that currently would exist is if you're a doctor in England, you can go practice in Canada for three or four years, and then you can move to the United States and start practicing here without repeating residency. But we're thinking, let's grease those skids and let them come straight to the United States. So that's a policy reform that we have on our website. I'd be more than happy to talk to anybody who's interested in trying to advance this reform. There are other organizations out there that are working on these reforms. Our lobbying arm has helped push this legislation in a handful of states. I know there are other organizations that are pushing it in Colorado. The state of Washington passed a temporary law, similarly, that allows a temporary uh, license, but it doesn't have a permanent status yet. The goal there would be that it would become permanent, but that's not what their statute says. So there's work going on. And I know the Massachusetts uh, legislature is working on a study committee bill right now to try to allow a study committee to try to study this. So there's opportunities in Massachusetts and around the country to advance this legislation. And we're happy to work with anybody who sees this as a great opportunity to address the physician shortage for all the reasons that you pointed out. Yes, I can't imagine that. You know, uh, I suppose somehow everybody can find a, a political valence of any issue, but I can't imagine anyone being against this, uh, particularly if if we can help underserved communities with doctors, high, high quality doctors, I'm sure we'll have standards. Are, are there international standards? Are, let's say, are there, uh, you know, we're, we're rattling off, uh, you know, developed countries. Are there places uh, or standards that we don't accept or wouldn't accept? Or would you have any concerns about quality uh, from 
I'm not going to throw any country under the bus here, but uh, you know, doctors that ought not to to show up with a with a stethoscope. No, there are definitely there are definitely countries, or sometimes it's not even countries. Sometimes it's particular programs in particular countries that are problematic. In the same way that we all have schools or programs at schools in the United States that all of us kind of would look look sideways and worry that someone coming out of that program might not have the right skills. What we try to do in our legislation, in our proposed legislation, is to give the state licensing board all the authority to vet candidates the same way they would with an American or Canadian trained resident. What we want them to be able to do is require all the same examinations. And so that's a really great way to guarantee that you know what you need to know. We want them to be able to evaluate the training that the person actually received, whether that means that the students need to send transcripts or syllabi, whatever those materials need to be so that state licensing boards can evaluate and ensure that people really have the training that they claim to have. And one of the reasons that we say we want to focus on doctors who are already practicing medicine and are licensed in their countries is because it's not just someone who says, hey, I've taken a couple of classes, but this is someone who's actually spent some time touching real patients in their country. Well, that, that's terrific. We don't have too many, you know, truly Pareto improving uh, policy uh, prescriptions here, but uh, this comes as close as I, I've, I've yet to see uh, uh, for our listeners. I can't imagine anyone not not uh, supporting this. So for our listeners who want to get engaged, for our legislators here in Massachusetts who perhaps want to champion this cause, uh, where can we find you, your work, and Cicero Institute? Yeah, visit us on the Cicero Institute website. It's ciceroinstitute.org. Our lobbying arm is ciceroaction at ciceroaction.org. I'm more than happy to talk to anybody, visit with legislators, however that can be helped to advance this cause. I think it's a cause that really can help our country, can help the patients of our country, and can make sure that people who have amazing skills that can be used to heal people are allowed to use those skills to do so. Yes, indeed. And let's not forget, we've, we help the doctors too, uh, who are trying to help us. That's wonderful. Absolutely. Well, we're going to end the show there. We've, we're, uh, we've covered the topic very well. Uh, thank you very much for your, uh, your work and your advocacy and for uh, introducing our listeners to this very important topic. Thank you, Jonathan. Thanks, Joe. Really appreciate being here. Thanks. This has been another episode of Hubwonk, a podcast of Pioneer Institute. If you enjoyed today's episode, there are several ways to support Hubwonk and Pioneer Institute. It would be easier for you and better for us if you subscribe to Hubwonk on your iTunes podcatcher. If you want to make it easier for others to find Hubwonk, it would be great if you offer a five-star rating or a favorable review. We're always grateful if you want to share Hubwonk with friends. If you have comments or ideas or suggestions for me for future episode topics, you're welcome to email me at hubwonk at pioneerinstitute.org. Please join me next week for a new episode of Hubwonk.